0: all right prayer all earthly things with earth will fade away But prayer grasps eternity but i'm convinced of this god does not hear prayer he hears desperate prayer prayer is not a position whether you knees. prayer is not a position it's a disposition you get to the place where you rather sweat you would rather weep in his presence than laugh in anybody else's presence Rather, God whisper a speak into your heart that breaks you than somebody give you the prizes that all the world covets. Prayer is almost the greatest human privilege that we have. Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter number 18, Luke chapter number 18, Don't get nervous if you're thinking, is Danny going to preach the same sermon as he did last week? I'm not. Uh, There is another parable in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus spends some time talking about the attitude that two different guys had when it came to prayer. So Luke chapter 18, while you're heading that direction, we've been in a series over the last several weeks where we've been talking about the topic of prayer. And uh, some people might think, well, why are we spending so much time in prayer? And the reason for us, it's because we believe our power is provided through prayer. We need Jesus to live out our lives for him every day, which is why we should seek him as often as we can in conversation, in prayer. Now, we've talked about a lot of different things. We've talked about what prayer is. We've talked about uh, how to pray, why to pray. We've talked about the power of prayer, how it impacts our lives and impacts others' lives. We've talked a ton about prayer prayer. And we're going to continue to do that this morning and for the next couple of weeks. And so listen, if you've missed any of that and you're just interested in what this series has been like, we'll, we would always point your attention to our website. You can go back and hear any uh, previous uh, sermons or worship experiences. Also, if you're a podcast person, you'd rather just find that on whatever platform you like to listen to your podcast. You can find the audio uh, sermons there as well. And so listen, don't miss uh, the opportunity to be challenged about how the Lord wants us to pray. So anyway, we're going to continue this morning uh, in Luke chapter 18. Earlier this week, I was listening to a sermon by a guy named John Elmore. John is one of the teaching pastors at Watermark Community Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, Texas area. Now I don't care so much about John, I'm sure he's a fantastic guy, however, what I want you to think about is an illustration that I heard in one of his sermons this past week. He shared an illustration about a job duty of a cowboy. And the job was called the bog rider. I don't know if anybody else has ever heard. About the bog rider, or is familiar with that phrase? It came from uh, kind of a, a folklore band who called themselves the Bog Riders, uh, and they wrote different, uh, you know, songs, westerns, you know, stuff you'd sing around the, the campfire kind of things. But anyway, the name of their band came from one of the jobs of. A cowboy. Now, a bog rider, in case you don't know, I didn't know either, and I'm BOG, by the way. For those of you who are like, what's uh, Danny even saying this morning? Uh, A bog rider was the job of almost every cowboy. Now, I'm not talking about the Dallas Cowboys. I'm talking about the Toby Keith rope and ride should have been a cowboy uh, kind of cowboys. It's not the job that cowboys wanted to do, but to be a cowboy, you would have to learn to do this job. The bog rider at the end of the day, would ride around to all of the bogs. Now, maybe you're thinking, what in the world is a bog? Well, the bogs were places that were once familiar watering holes for the cattle of the cowboys. When the rain stopped and all the water began to dry up, the cattle would still go to those familiar watering holes in order to find water. What they would actually find when they got there was a bog. They would find a whole lot of mud and mess. Though the water was receding, the cattle would go further and further into the bog. Once water that it desired, it would, in fact, because of its weight and having no idea what it was doing, it would be stuck in that bog. It would be stuck in the mud. So the job of the bog rider was to go to those familiar watering holes and to seek out any cattle that might have gotten stuck at the end of the day. Once he found any stranded cattle. Once the bog rider got there, he would tie himself off to his own horse and begin to dig his way out to the cow. Now, many would think, why not just, you know, throw a rope around the cow and drag it out of the mud with your horse? Well, the problem is because of the weight of the cow, it would be so stuck in the mud that if that was what you tried to do, you would eventually just strangle the cow and it would not get out of the mud. It would, in fact, die. So, don't do that when you're trying to save the cow. So once the cowboy has gotten off of his horse and he grabbed his shovel, he would dig himself out to where the cow was and he would begin to dig around the cow in order to help it free from the bog. Now realize at this moment that the cowboy, or the bog rider in this case, has also become covered in the mud. The mess the cow has gotten into has now become the mess the bog rider has gotten into. Eventually, the cowboy, the bog rider, would clear enough away that he would wrap the rope around the cow and he would get his horse to apply enough pressure to help the cow get free from the area in which he's dug around the cow. Then... The bog rider, along with whatever stranded cattle he's gotten out of the bogs, would return back to the camp with the other cowboys. Now all the other guys had finished their work, they've cleaned up, they've eaten, and then in strolls the bog bird in mud. From head to toe, the filth and the bog all over him, all for the sake of one cow. This is the job of the bog rider. Now, I know what you're thinking. Danny, why in the world are you talking about cowboys and mud? I'm with you. The reason is because when I heard this story, this illustration, I don't know about you, but I began to think about Jesus. You say, why? Because Jesus is the great bog rider. You with me? I was like that cow. Now, don't get offended. You were also like that cow. I'm not calling you a cow, but just like me, You probably know what it's like to be stuck in the mud. As a matter of fact, there are some in this room that are still like that cow, stuck in the mud, stuck in the bog, stuck in their sin. Friends, that was me. I was so lost in my sin. I was living for anything that made me happy. In other words, I like they were possessions for my own pleasure. I abused drugs like they were supplements for my happiness. I abused people like they were a means to my own fulfillment. Friends, I was stuck. Yet, Jesus stepped into the bog and pulled me out. As a matter of fact, King David makes reference to what we would call the bog. I don't know if you realize this, but if you were to look through your Bible, there's only one place that you would find this word. It's found in Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. This is the cry of David's heart. Listen to it. He wrote, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, the song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their Lord. Did you catch what David said? Out of the miry bog is where God found him. However, friends, that's not where God leaves the man who cries out to him. David cried out, and God brought him out of the miry bog and set his feet on solid ground. Okay, Danny, still, why are you talking about the miry bog? Well, because, friends, this is the type of prayer, the attitude that God is looking for when we cry out to him. He's looking for people who are broken, who are desperate, who are dependent on him. He's looking for those who come to him in humble submission. He's looking for an attitude of repentance and surrender. In fact, I'm not telling you this simply because this is my story, or because this is how I approach Jesus in prayer. In fact, there are many times where I forget this is the attitude in prayer. I'm talking about this because Jesus himself teaches this truth to his disciples in Luke chapter 18. You don't have to take Danny's word for it. My word means nothing. Let's take Jesus's word for it when he explains the attitude of humble, submissive, repentant, confessional prayer look at luke 18 starting in verse number nine he also told this parable the he by the way is jesus again right he just finished one parable now he's jumping to another he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt now last week i want to pause here we looked at a parable of jesus it was the parable just before this one in luke 18. Now, if you remember, a parable is simply a story that Jesus told in order to teach a spiritual principle. It was an illustration. It's an earth with a heavenly meaning. Now, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about prayer. However, this conversation of these parables began really back in Luke chapter 17 when Jesus was asked a question by the Pharisees. Now, he's still teaching his disciples about prayer in this moment, but he also has those Pharisees in mind or all those who Jesus says trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. These are the people that Jesus is wanting to listen in this moment. Now what I love about how this begins is because Jesus uses this word trusted. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. The word for trusted that Jesus uses means to be convinced or to be persuaded. This group that Jesus is wanting to listen clearly to what he has to say, thinks that they have persuaded, they've convinced themselves that they have everything perfect, that they have everything together, that they are the standard that other people should look to and no one else Has it figured out except for them? How many times do we need to be reminded? God can only pour his grace into a broken heart. If it's closed, grace can't get in. He's looking for people who are broken, not those who trust in themselves. And so look at verse 10. The parable begins. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. By the way, this is kind of synonymous with the stories that you might have heard somebody walk up to you and tell before, such as a priest and a rabbi and a pastor all enter an establishment together. You've heard these kind of jokes. Jesus is starting off his illustration. Hey guys, Pharisee and a tax collector, they went up to the temple to pray, right? Like the joke begins The parable begins with these two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both of them are going up into the temple to pray, but we can be certain of one thing. They did not go to the temple to pray together. You see, the Pharisee would have never been caught associating with a sinner like a tax collector. As a matter of fact, one commentary writer says these are the two extremes in Jewish society. Jesus is making a comparison with the best of the best in their society and with the worst of the worst? What makes them the two extremes in Jewish society? Well, I think it's a good reminder for us just to think about who these two characters are. The first one is the Pharisee. Now, there are two ways that they would have thought about the Pharisees at this time. As a matter of fact, there are so many commentator writers that put this into greater. These guys at this particular time would have been the standard that other Jews wanted to be like. Now we know how Jesus talks about them, right? They're hypocrites, they're uh, you know, religious elitists who don't understand what's really happening. They're too proud, uh, they're too self-righteous. We understand his comparisons to them in the Gospels. He condemns them, right? But at this particular time in Jewish life, he's not using this illustration as the hypocrite Pharisee. The people who are listening to this illustration would have thought of the Pharisee in light of that is perfection. That is who I'm trying to be like. As a matter of fact, one commentator writer said, "...it's reasonable to conclude that his listeners admired the Pharisees and being like them thought themselves to be righteous." The Pharisees ranked among the highest esteemed Jews in terms of religious effort. This is the picture of the Pharisees, the hypocrites that Jesus talks about. But in this comparison, those people who may or may not like them still consider these guys to be the religious elite who follow all of the law that if we're gonna be anything right before God, we've gotta at least be like these guys. That is who Jesus is giving a picture of. And then there's the tax collector. Now, in case you don't know this, the tax collector is an interesting type of person. Here's how one commentary writer puts what a tax collector would have been like in that day. The Roman government, together with local authorities, imposed a range of taxes on its citizens. This was from direct uh, poll and land taxes to indirect tolls or customs on goods in transit. They had taxes. However, instead of the Romans applying the taxes, what they would do is they would lease out the rights to collect taxes to individuals, who then took a surcharge for their own expenses. So they would find someone who would bid enough by being the tax collector, I'm going to purchase that business, and then they would charge whatever they wanted to for people to pay taxes, whatever profit they could get, that's what they would do. So, since this charge was seldom controlled, the system was open to great abuse and corruption. Tax collectors were despised in Israel, not only because of their reputation for extortion, but also for their complicity with the hated. Romans. Most of us know the accounts of the tax collectors. We realize the comparison that Jesus is making. They were typically Jews who sided with the enemy Romans in order to profit by taking advantage of their own people. They owed their power, their wealth, their privileges to the occupying Roman rulers. They were dishonest thieves and despised by all now what may even be more interesting in this particular story is that a pharisee and a tax collector are going to the temple it's shocking that a tax collector would be entering the temple at all you say danny what do you mean well listen to this the mishnah this is the 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 writings of the oral traditions that uh the the pharisees scribes other religious leaders have put together over years and years and years anyway the mishnah uh, prohibits that took a minute The Mishnah prohibits even receiving alms from a tax collector at his office, since the money is presumed to have been gained illegally. If a tax collector entered a house, all that was in it became unclean. The very presence of a tax collector in the temple, the house of God, was viewed as an act of defilement. Why would he even be there? I don't know. But in case you don't know, the Jews had three daily prayer times that were common practice in their religious life. They would go to the temple to pray at 9 a.m., they would go at noon, and they would go at 3 p.m. As a matter of fact, it says, who's regarded the prayers that were prayed in the temple as being more effective than any other prayer that you can pray. These are the two very different characters that are on their way to the temple to pray. There's the Pharisee who prayed at the temple often. This is the most religious person you can think of. Now, religious doesn't equal spiritual. Always at church, knows all the Sunday school answers, has their offering envelope ready, can tell you every detail of our Constitution and bylaws. The most churchy person who never does anything wrong. And the tax collector who never darkened the doors. This is the person that you can't believe showed up for church today. Why are they here? They shouldn't be here with the way that they live their life. Why are they present? Now, two characters that Jesus is about to talk about. I want to show you the contrast. This is where it gets really interesting. Look at verse 11 and 12 of Luke 18. The Pharisees standing prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I'm so glad I'm not so unworthy, a sinner like that. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is the puffed up prayer of the Pharisee. Now, here's what we learned from the Pharisee. You ready? God doesn't hear the prayer of the hypocrite. He doesn't. God doesn't hear the prayer of the hypocrite. Now, maybe you're thinking, Danny, what is the prayer of the hypocrite? Well, the Pharisee shows us this in the illustration that Jesus uses. First of all, the prayer of the hypocrite, it's marked by preference to oneself. That's the first thing. You say, Danny, how can I know the prayer of the hypocrite? How can I know if I'm hypocritical in my prayer life? Well, it's marked by preference to oneself. This is why in verse, Jesus is talking about the Pharisee. He uses this statement, standing by himself prayed thus. Now, the word for standing means to put something forward. Now, it's not particularly unusual because both the Pharisee and the tax collector are both found standing and they're both found Pray. However, the word that's used for standing is used differently with the Pharisee than it is with the tax collector. The word that's used for the Pharisee means to cause something to stand, to establish, to authorize, to acknowledge the validity of something. In other words, the use of the word that Jesus has in Luke 18 seems to suggest that the Pharisee was actually putting himself forward, showing himself. Off, or making himself visible. He was a Pharisee. He thought so highly of himself. He wanted to be in a place that everyone would see him, everyone would hear him, everyone would notice that he's the one offering the prayer. Now, this is not unusual for Jesus to teach about this type of hypocritical praying. As a matter of fact, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, chapter 5, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray. He said, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, this phrase, by himself, is interesting. An alternative reading changes the word order to read like this. The Pharisee stood and prayed this about himself. Now, the alternate reading might better convey what Jesus wants his listeners to understand. The Pharisee wasn't praying to God. The Pharisee was praying to himself. As a matter of fact, somebody might have the New King James Bible this morning. Here's how it reads, translates this same verse. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I love how one commentator put it. He said, he did not pray to God. Instead, he carried on a conversation within his own soul. Though he addressed God, all that came thereafter was a recital of his own virtues. He was quite satisfied with himself. He felt no need to pray other than the fact that the hour of prayer had come. And he made sure that at that time to be where he would be seen. In fact, he evidently felt that God was quite fortunate To have someone like the Pharisee to pray to him at all. It's interesting that the hypocritical prayer that God does not hear is marked by preference to oneself. Second thing I want you to see is that it's marked by pride in oneself. Look at how he continues on. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God... I like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. No, no, no. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see what's happening here? Even when he thanks God, he's still looking at himself. In fact, five times he uses the word I. I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see it? His prayer was one of selfishness and arrogance. This wasn't an uncommon attitude, by the way, of the Pharisees. One rabbi is quoted to have said, If there are only two righteous men in the world, I and my son are those two. And if there's only one, I am he. Wow, threw his son under the bus really quick, didn't he? He certainly wasn't like this tax collector. I thought about this, I'm thinking about his prayer life, and I'm going, how often do I have these types of attitudes in my own prayer life? How often do I pray in such a way to think more highly of myself? God should bend his ear to me because it's me, Danny. Ah, right? (sighs) How laughable must that be when God realizes that I didn't come to him in prayer because of my relationship with him. Instead, I came to him in prayer because it's what I was supposed to do or it's how I could look better or it's how I could present myself as something great in the eyes of God. How ludicrous must he think my prayers can be? Can I show you something else though? The prayer of the hypocrite that God doesn't hear is also marked by praise of oneself. I mean, clearly, we can see the preference to oneself, the pride in oneself, but what about the praise of oneself? You look back at verse 12, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee presents his own case, twice a week, I fast. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 16, the Jews were only required to fast on the day of atonement. However, devout Jews would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. You want to know why? Why? days. You say, Danny, why is that important? Because that's when the most people would be present in town to see them fasting before everybody else. It was all about them. I give tithes of all that I get. He went beyond the typical requirement for tithes. In fact, the law required tithes of corn, wine, oil, and cattle. But the Pharisee boasted that I give tithes of all that I get. All of this is to point to his own goodness as if God owes him because of his supreme dedication before God. The prayer of the hypocrite highlights one thing in particular. Me, I, self. Make no mistake, the Pharisee is stuck in the bog too. He may not know it, but he's stuck in the bog of self-righteousness. In fact, Jesus has already mentioned this in Luke 15. He's like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He's got his own issues that need to be worked out. Pharisee indulged himself in a soliloquy, a conversation with his own soul. And had not the temple been destroyed by Titus, his prayer might still be bouncing around within its walls. Wherever his prayer might be, let me tell you this, friends, it never arrived before the throne of grace. Let me remind you what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Make no mistake, friend, God doesn't hear the prayer of the hypocrite. He doesn't. It's not the attitude that he's looking for. That's the Pharisee. Aren't you glad he doesn't stop there? No, he goes on. There's another character. He moves to the tax collector. Look at verse 13 of Luke 18. But the tax collector, right? We've heard about the Pharisee, the hypocritical prayer. But what about this guy, the tax collector? Surely Jesus couldn't be saying, don't be like the Pharisee tax collector. There's no way that Jesus would make this comparison. Oh, but he does. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There it is. There's the huge contrast in the prayer. One all about self, the other laying self down because God's the only one worthy. What do we learn from the tax collector? Well, it's simple. God doesn't hear the prayer of the hypocrite, but God does hear the prayer of the humble. Hmm. say, Danny, what is the prayer of the humble? Let me show you because that's exactly what the tax collector teaches us. It's marked by condition before God. I want you to see this. This is so beautiful. Such a great reminder for me as I studied this text this week. Look back at verse 13. But the tax collector standing would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Just like the Pharisee, we find the tax collector standing. However, this verb is different than the first. This one doesn't imply standing so that I will be put forward. This one implies standing so as to not be seen. The difference in the tax collector and the Pharisee was the Pharisee was all about himself. The tax collector didn't even want anybody else in the world to know he was there. It was just him and God. Nobody else present as far as he was concerned. The phrase far off helps us understand the different attitudes between the two even better. He wasn't standing a long way from the temple. He was standing a long way from the Pharisee in the position of honor that the Pharisee held. You see, the tax collector wasn't like the Pharisee. He knew he had a lot of mud, a lot of mess that was covering his life because of the bog in which he was stuck in, the sin in which he was stuck in. He didn't consider himself worthy, clean enough to even enter. He went in the temple, the temple would be messy. He couldn't go. And so he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. You see the attitude? He knew what society thought of him. He knew what everyone in the temple thought about him. He knew what the Pharisee thought about him. In fact, the Pharisee had already let everybody know in there what he thought about the tax collector. It was no secret to him or anyone else that he didn't deserve to be speaking with God. In fact, he calls himself a sinner. He knows it. Friend, can I point something out to you? This is what the Bible says about all of us. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2? He said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Hey, Fred, you were stuck in the bog. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were are nature, by nature, children of wrath. He's reminding us that we are all... Remember what he told the church at Rome in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none who are good. Remember what he said later in Romans 5.8? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, we didn't get out of the bog and clean ourselves up, and then we walked into the temple. No, friends, we entered as sinners. That's our condition. Don't forget. Don't forget your condition when you pray. Remember in humility what your condition was like before Jesus saved you. You didn't earn anything. You didn't stand before God because you were worthy. God doesn't owe us anything, yet he allows us, even sinners, to come before his throne. But friends, don't miss this either. Not just what your condition was like before you were saved, but don't forget what your condition is like today. How many times do we wander back into more bog? How many of us have mud on our shoes that came in this building? Holy God, every one of us do. Don't forget your condition today. You're still a sinner saved by Jesus. We need him every moment of every day. Our attitude should always be one of humility. Listen, God hears the prayer of the humble. It's marked by condition before God. But also, I want you to notice it's marked by contrition before God. Look back at verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. This is his response to God. This is his attitude. Now, we don't think about this phrase the way that they did, but this phrase, beat his breast, it implies weeping and mourning over his sinfulness. He was broken. He was remorseful. In fact, listen, the apostle Paul describes this moment like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly death. This is exactly where we find the tax collector in this moment of prayer. It wasn't just that he knew he was undeserving and sinful. He was remorseful. He was sorrowful. He was repentant. As a matter of fact, I think King David said it best in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You know what he's saying? You don't delight in all of my fastings. You don't delight in all of my tithing. You don't delight in all that fake stuff that I put before you. No, no, no. I want you to come back to the heart of worship. I want you to remember the one that you call on. He says, listen, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But listen to what David writes. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart contrition in God. He says, oh God, you will not despise these things. Oh, how different is the attitude of the tax collector and the Pharisee fasted and tithed and did everything right according to everybody else around him. His attitude was to boast of his own goodness, but that's not what God desires. He desires the tax collector attitude, the attitude that knew nothing else to do except beat his breast before God. I'm reading this and I'm realizing how much my heart needs to hear that truth. And then I thought, I bet there's some people in this room this morning that needs to hear this truth. Jesus isn't looking for perfect people to do everything right. He's looking for broken people who are seeking after him. As a matter of fact, he already made this clear in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5. There was another time that the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled at his disciples. They came to Jesus saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance. Praise God that I'm a sinner that he called to repentance. And I wonder who's here this morning. It's like, Danny, I'm in the bog, man. You don't realize the mess, the mud, The junk in my life, I am way too far gone. Friend, you're not. He's the great bog rider. He's got the shovel out this morning. He's wanting to dig through the mess of your life. Let the spirit dig. He wants to free you from that junk. Will you have the heart of the tax collector? God hears the prayer of the humble. It's marked by condition before God. It's marked by contrition in God. Let me show you this last one. It's marked by confession to God. Back in verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. One commentator wrote this, said, whereas the Pharisee confessed other men's sins, the tax collector, the Pharisee regarded himself righteous and all other men sinners, but the tax collector thought of himself as the only sinner in the world. The Pharisee compared his life with those of other men. The tax collector compared his life only with the righteousness and holiness of God. Actually, the Pharisee was too proud to pray. He could only remind God of the reward due him. But the tax collector was so convicted of his sins that he could not keep from praying. Not for reward, but for mercy. I love the word that Jesus used for merciful. It means to make atonement or to make what the New Testament calls propitiation. Propitiation. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, in description of Jesus. Listen to how he's described. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make the sins of the people. What's he say? To be merciful. What's he really say? To forgive tax collector isn't just asking God to be kind to him, even though he deserves so much worse. He's asking God to forgive him of his sins. He knows he's a sinner in need of a savior, in need of the mercy and atonement of God. Friend, do you realize that today? This is still true for us. The apostle Paul couldn't have made it any more simple than he did in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, when he wrote these words, if you confess with your mouth, That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Hey, listen, if you're here this morning and you know you're a sinner, can I tell you something? You're in good company. If you're here this morning and you know that all you can do before God is beat against your chest in desperation, can I tell you something? You are in good. If you're here this morning and you don't even feel worthy to lift up your eyes to heaven, can I tell you something? You are in good company. You might be thinking, but Danny, I'm broken and messy. I'm stuck in the mud. I'm stuck in the bog. I'm stuck in my sin. I'm not like all of you who are good and have it all together. (laughs) Ha ha. Why would Jesus want me, Danny? Friend, that's you and your story. Can I tell you something? You're exactly who Jesus wants. He came for you. Will you surrender your life to him today? I know, let's finish. Luke 18, look at verse 14. I'm almost there, I promise. I tell you, Jesus finishes with this statement. I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house, Justified rather than the other, that other Pharisee, right? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles he exalted. Friend, can I tell you something, the only way a man can be justified before God. The only way that a man can be made righteous is to call out to him. Remember what Paul wrote when he quoted the prophet Joel in Romans 10:13? He said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word justified describes the legal status of a defendant before a judge, a legal standing that ultimately determines that person's future. If a person is considered just, they will not receive punishment. If, on the other hand, a person is considered unjust, they face fines or imprisonments or even worse. In human courts, one must prove one's innocence in order to be declared just by the judge. But in God's courtroom, one may emerge justified only by grace. You have no defense except for the Lord Jesus. Friend, you can't call on yourself. There's nothing you can do to earn mercy or right. That's why Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. It's only the one who humbles himself that God will accept. Matter of fact, Jesus made this statement in a previous parable in Luke chapter 14. He mentions it another time in Luke chapter 13. In fact, maybe Matthew 20 gives us the greatest picture when Jesus describes himself. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the type of humility that God is looking for in his people. Exalt means to lift up. Humble means to make low. These are the only two ways that we can respond to God. We can be like the devil who stands proudly in defiance of God. We can be like Pharaoh who wouldn't listen or bend his ear to the Lord. Or we can respond like John did in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him talking about Jesus, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. I love what maybe all times wrote Charles Spurgeon. Come just as thou art with nothing of thine own. Accept thy sinfulness and plead that before the throne. How many of us need to spend a few moments today pleading before the throne? I'm not talking about pleading and all of your goodness. I'm not talking about telling God how great you are, how much better you are than somebody else. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about every person in this room who all they have to offer God is sinfulness. I don't care if you're lost and on your way to hell or if you're a believer who's been saved for 50 years. Do you know what you bring to God today? You bring him nothing but your sin. Why should our attitude in prayer be anything other than to fall on our faces before him, repentant, confessing that we are not worthy? Friends, can I tell you something? If you don't know Jesus today, that's how you respond to him. This: You look into your own life, you see the dirt, you see the mess, you see the bog that you're stuck in, and you realize one thing, there is only one who can free you, his name is Jesus, and he wants to today. Hey, if you're a follower of Christ in here, I don't care for how many years, can I tell you something? You still go into the bog. The gospel wasn't just meant for people who are lost. The gospel's for every person who calls on the name of Jesus so that we can live how God wants every moment of every day. Friend, you still need him. You still get in the bog. You might be in the bog today, not stuck in your sin, but certainly stuck in unconfession. God wants you to repent. He wants you to confess. He wants to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I love how John put it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. You know, John's not talking about somebody who's lost who needs to get saved. You know, John's talking church. He's saying, friends, you got mud on your shoes. You are covered in your own mess. Will you not go to the one who can cleanse you? His name is Jesus. I don't know where you are today. But here's what I know. I want my attitude of prayer to be so much more like this tax collector. I have nothing worthy to offer God. Instead, I should beat my chest, broken before him, realizing he's all I got. Do you need that reminder today, friend? How you been praying? Everything in your life been about you? You've been up on a pedestal thinking you're something great? I know that hurts a little bit. I'm sorry, You you are pretty cool, probably. But you are nothing compared to our God, yet he dug through the bog. He got in your mess to get you out. If that doesn't make you fall on your face before Jesus, friend, I what will. Listen, as I've said throughout this entire series, what's great about preaching about prayer is that when we get to respond today, we can actually pray. <laughs> So listen, you don't know Jesus. You need a relationship with him. The Holy Spirit's convicting your heart because you know he's trying to pull you out of the bog. He's trying to save you from the very gates of hell. Hey friend, if that's you, I'm gonna be in that lobby. I'd love to take my Bible, open it up and tell you how you can follow Jesus. You come find me. Don't be scared. Don't be getting pushed around anymore by the devil. No, no, no. You make your way to that lobby and me and you will talk about Jesus. You know what I know mostly? There's probably a whole lot of people in this room who are just like me. You love Jesus as much as you possibly can in this moment. But I wonder how many, I wonder how much junk, mess, bog, has been slowing you down from what Jesus wants to do in your life. I don't know if God's hearing me past this ceiling. Can I tell you something? If you're living in sin, if you haven't confessed before God, they are bouncing around this room as much as you want them to, but they are not going before the throne of grace. You know how prayers go before the throne of grace? When they're done in humble submission, repentant, confessing hearts before Jesus. Friend, let that be your attitude as you pray.